Be still, toil no more, forsake the open road, stop moving, let deep roots grow. These are some of the charges given by the Continental Principality of America to her prophet Prior Walter in Tony Kushner's award-winning play, Angels in America. Desperate for the return of God, the return of the old ways, this angel implores the AIDS-infected dying prior to spread the message of stasis. Near the end of the play, having decided to be her messenger no longer, Pryor addresses the court of angels in heaven to tell them their dream is an impossibility. We can't just stop. Pryor reminds them that we still want, we still desire. Even if we would desire just to stay still, it is still a desire for. And the thing we want most of all is more life. Despite the terrible times, despite the pain and loss and decay, Pryor declares that he wants more life. I can't help myself. I do. The commitment to live, even past hope, is a palpable force. In another text, with less awards but a higher readership, prophets living through their own terrible days encounter a charge not to stop, not to secure the past, but to, with courage, imagination and love, proclaim that life is not about stasis, but is a liberation journey into increasingly mutual relationships. Captured by God's love for the whole of creation, they challenge the injustice of their time and cast a vision of an alternative future. My guest today is Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev, founder and leader of Beit Midrash of Santa Fe, a multi-faith sacred learning community. Today we are discussing his book, The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets, Then and Now, out with Orbis Books. In this work and in our interview, he explores the creative and transformative work of the Hebrew prophets and charts the development of biblical liberation themes in writers including Paulo Freire, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Martin Luther King Jr., Grace Lee Boggs, and Bell Hooks. The book is filled with rich insight, potent spiritual practices, and an invitation to people of all faiths to view current challenges through a prophetic lens and take prophetic action. My name is Liam Miller. This is Love, Rinse, Repeat. Please welcome my guest today, Rabbi Neham Wadlev. So uh, how about, let's just get to know you a little bit to begin with. Um, Just maybe just let us know a bit about yourself and particularly maybe a bit about the work of uh, Viet Midrash, uh, where you work uh, and where you found it. Yeah, so... um... I was the rabbi here in Santa Fe, New Mexico from 93 to 2000. And then I took, uh, I, I retired from that and my family, we spent six months in Israel. and I studied in a Beit Midrash in the Galilee. And I really fell in love with the Beit Midrash form of study. I mean, Beit Midrash means house of exploration. So it's really a spirit of adventure in the study. And what I loved about it was that the text was the teacher. And the, the role of the leader was to facilitate a really good and rich conversation uh, around the, the text. And I also loved about the Baby Drosh was it wasn't simply academic, it was really study for the purpose of transforming our own lives, you know, so that we just leave it on the page, we really applied it to 
okay, it, it, what do we learn from this and how do we live this in, into our lives? And so when I came back in late 2000, I created a, a Beit Midrash in, in, in Santa Fe to, uh, to do just, just that. And it's been going uh, ever since. And it's, it's uh, really a, a joy to be able to, to lead, lead that group. Yeah, that's excellent. And uh, in the book, you kind of say how how this book that we're discussing, uh, I'm about to hold it up as if I'm doing a video for the people. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the book is The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets Then and Now, uh, that this actually emerged out of conversations you were having at Beit Midrash, a desire to, I want to talk about the prophets, let's see if other people want to, and, and let's see where that leads. Talk a bit about how that kind of, those yeah, conversations so led about- to the book. Yeah. So about 10 years ago, it became clear to me that we were living in prophetic times, meaning uh, prophets who lived, say, 2,500, 600 years ago, living at the time, the basic institutions of the day, the, the, the king, the, the, the temple, the economic institution of the day, uh, really were not serving most of the people. And the gap between the rich and the poor was, was, was growing and there was a lot of, lot, lot of suffering. And it was clear to the prophets that uh, this social, economic, political configuration was unjust and unsustainable and, and was outside of, of the covenant between God and Israel about who Israel was supposed to be. And so the prophet's really clear about two things. One is that the present order was coming down. And two, that a whole new way of being was going to, going to arise. And they were beginning to envision that. And it felt to me like uh, that's what we need today. We need really the clarity that the current social economic order uh, is leaving uh, too many people outside the benefits of, of the society and too much suffering, too much gap to the rich and the poor and, you know, and all the details of that. I mean, well before you know, the current coronavirus, obviously. And that uh, we needed to face that honestly and we needed to be able to envision an alternative future. So I thought it'd be really fruitful to study these problems. And I invited the Beit Jirash 20 adults to study these prophets uh, with me. Uh, but what really became transformative for me in terms of beginning to think about the book was I later started a second group. And that, um, that was 10 years ago, I started a second group and was studying Genesis and began to see Genesis as a prophetic text uh, in a narrative form that, that, the, that the themes we were seeing the prophets were coming out in, in, in Genesis. And I, that was really exciting because it, the implication was that it's not that there are prophets in the Bible, but that the Bible itself, Hebrew scriptures itself, is a perfect text. And, and so I really wanted to uh, explore that. And that's really what, what led to, to the writing of the book. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think we'll get into a bit of that uh, in a little bit when we look at the way you kind of link Deuteronomy and, and the prophets as well, like these, these books and, and, and that prophetic stream that runs through. But uh, before we get there, I was thinking, you know, um, I was thinking about the Jackie DeShannon song, you know, when she told the, you know, told us that what the world needs now is, is love, sweet love. Uh, your book opens not in contrast or conflict with that, but that, you know, what the world needs now is, is wisdom, courage, and vision. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, about, you know, these three characteristics that you, you honed in on, uh, both as the way they kind of, you know, I guess, critique world as it is and also construct uh, a vision of the world that could be. Yeah, I, I will, but I first want to connect to this theme of love because the, my working title for the book was 
a journey in love. And now is the name of the chapter, but my editor really felt strongly that Hebrew prophets need to be in the title. And I agreed. And so, but I, but I, it was really important to me to make the point that you saw in the book that the prophets are often characterized as these uh, angry old men their finger at this wayward people. And I really wanted to present them as Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great scholar rabbi presents them as these were humans who were so imbued with God's love for all of creation that anything that thwarted the flourishing of any part of creation uh, was an abomination and, and, and was against the will of God. You know, and so uh, it was out of love that these prophets critiqued their society. It was out of love that these prophets were able to transcend the brokenness and to envision an alternative future. And, and as you know, in the, in the second half of the book where I bring contemporary prophets, that theme of love becomes really central. So I really want to underline that. But in terms of wisdom, um, courage, and, and, um, and vision, um, let me just start with, with courage. Um, I think it, it, it takes a lot of courage, uh, especially for um, privileged white people like you and me and virtually all of my students to look at a reality at an order that privileges us and to say it's totally wrong, it's unjust, and it needs to be radically reconstructed. I think that that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to speak that wisdom. Um, and, and also, I think it takes courage to envision an alternative way forward. You know, to, to really be able to, to uh, have the courage to say that there is another way of being, you know. And, um, and so wisdom comes to, in, in the sense of how do we pursue that way forward? And, and vision is, I think vision is a really important quote, you know, in the middle of the virus today, you know, we, we need vision. We need vision for how can we come out of this much better as a, as a, as a society, as societies in, in the world. And so to be able to foresee a way forward that's alternative and, and radically different than today is I think really important. Prophets had those qualities of courage, wisdom, and and so I, I, I really wanted to read them so I could uh, them in myself and in my students. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Well, let's 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 stay with. We'll go back to where you were talking about love there, because I think you're right. That's such an important thing, and I think you, you, you characterize it so well. We have a picture of often not unloving, but just that love isn't a part of what's going on with the prophet. Um, you know, that it is this kind of very firm, very stern kind of thing. But um, you're kind of saying, you know, you write in the book that the care, the care for God, uh, getting involved in God's justice comes from first experiencing love, uh, the love of God and, and, and then seeing God's love for the world. Uh, so you, you write that there's for, 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 three inherent qualities in every prophet, you know, an encounter with divine love and concern for the world, courage to name oppression and a moral imagination to articulate an alternative future. So Liam, I read the book well, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's all right. Thank you. Uh, if, if love is where it starts, right, if, if, if encountering this divine love, being gripped by God's love for creation, if that's what it takes to start before the courage, before the vision, uh, how do we open ourselves to this love? What are, what are practices, what are stances and postures we can take that, that, that allows us to ex, you know, experience that divine love and to be captured by it in such a way that we then take the next steps into speaking truth uh, and power to power? 
Liam, I love that question. And it's a Beit Midrash style question and it. It doesn't leave it on the page. It says, well, how do we do this? I love that question. So at the end of the book, I've got, um, I think, 10 <laughs> spiritual practices for prophetic action. You know, and many of them are really about how do we access that love? And, you know, so, um, so one of those practices is, uh, is gratitude practice. It's to really be aware of how we are being given, how God is giving us our lives and the, the love that's present in that. Gratitude practice is a powerful spiritual practice to feel how life is being given to us and if we want to give to others. Um, a reverence practice, which for me is practicing awe and wonder, to look around at the world and to realize what a wonder this life is, you know? It's like, <laughs> I look outside and there's a pear tree outside and it, this pear tree can take sunlight and soil and water and produce pears. It's like, wow, that's like <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. The intelligence, this, I mean, between you and I and, and, and a million smart people that we know, none of us could know how to do that, you know? I mean, it's a wonder, you know? So yeah. I, I think being in touch with, we're in the middle of this wonder and having reverence for us also um, fills the heart with, with love. I think that the rabbis in the Talmud say, um, find for yourself a teacher and make for yourself a companion, a friend, you know? And so I, I think that, um, for me, you know, I, I practice spiritual direction and I receive spiritual direction which is not that it's God being a director, it, it's having someone accompany you in your spiritual path is a great access for me in terms of feeling God's love. Um, and having friends that I can share my inner life with also helps me to feel God's love. So um, in the Beit Midrash, studying sacred text in community, in deep, honest, adventurous, risk-taking community, that sense of love is really present. So these are all, you know, friendships, study, conversation, dialogue, wonder, gratitude, prayer, meditation. I think all the, these are all things in the back of the book, in the appendix. I think all these things are ways that we, you know. And then I, I was speaking with a, a good friend just earlier today, and that is that I think it's really important within our spiritual life, when we feel God's presence, to ask, how is that presence calling us forward to be in the world continually. How is this loving presence calling us forward to be in that world? And I think we ask that question continually, then we're looking, we're, we're feeling as to bring that love, how do we bring that love into the world? And so that sense of asking, how is God's presence calling upon me today, in this moment, to be in the world, I think is a really powerful spiritual practice for for um, moving with a prophetic stream. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, another thought that I was thinking with, with this kind of idea of these practices or these, these you know, ways of opening ourselves up is, you know, opening ourselves up to love. And then also you talk later in the book about the importance of our imagination, yes. of imagination in the prophetic stream. Uh, you yes. write that imagination is the first human receptor for the prophetic stream and how you know, the prophecy is a river and the nonverbal language of the flow of this river stirs the fruits of this imagination. And, and one thing you draw on specifically is to talk about art, uh, that art is the language of imagination 
Art opens human awareness to possibilities and encourages adventurous thinking and visionary creativity. Now, I love this because I love art uh, and, and occasionally produce, you know, art or things that could be labelled artistic. But um, uh, I'm wondering, first of all, the first question here is the, uh, has there been any art recently uh, that has been tending to or feeding your imagination? Uh, anything you've been watching, reading, experiencing that, that of late that you want to shout out? Uh, and then I guess interested in the way that, you know, because prophetic work is often done, you know, grounded in community. Can you think of, are there examples either you draw out in the book or, or from your life where you see art being done in and by community in a way that fosters uh, that wisdom, courage and vision that we've been talking about already. Yeah, what a great question. First, I want to say that what you and I are doing right now is art. You know, we are having a, a conversation that is not pre-scripted. This is an aliveness in our meeting and in this dialogue together. The dialogue is a, is a, a, a deep form of, of art, you know. And, and so I... The art that's been most moving is I see conversation, you know, all across the world, all across the web, intensely, all the time. Uh, how do we dream ourselves, work ourselves, love ourselves, envision ourselves, uh, be coalitions together to bring forward the new world that we need to bring forward? And so uh, the, the dynamic, creative, searching conversations that we have uh, I think now are a, a really valuable form of art, you know, and, you know, you, you clearly read the book so carefully saw that in that chapter on art, I began with what we normally might think of as art. And then I, I go on to what I call social art, you know, and, and, and people who are being creative in, 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 in all kinds of endeavors. And like, like I, I give an example of Wes Jackson, who in Kansas with the land Institute is learning how studying how to grow of, uh, uh, crops without um, disturbing the soil, which means there's less runoff and need for, you know, much less input into land. Well, that's an art, uh, you know, that's an art with, with creation, you know. So, and, and then I, I really, um, the way it came to me so clearly was to see that in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the people were working as slaves. And at the end of the book of Exodus, the people were still working, but what were they doing? They were building a sacred tabernacle, they were being artists which is the way that, that, that freedom took them to, to, to be, take their labor and to be creative with it, that, that that's our call to be artists. And I, I think that, you know, in our culture, we're taught in some ways that there's a few people who are artists and that's their work. And that's how they be productive. And the rest of us need to be productive in other ways. And we're valued by how much we can produce and how much we can consume. And to see that, no, we're actually, all called to be artists in our life, all are touched by creativity, that, 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 that God's touch gives all of us insights and dreams and visions. And some of it's going to come out in traditional art, and some of it's going to come out in conversation, some of it's going to come out in who knows what, you know, but that we're all called to be artists. I think that at the end of the book, actually, all the people are involved in making the tabernacle. And I think that's a really, really important image, not just a few quote-unquote talented people. Yeah, I like that a lot. Thank you for that. Uh, so I, I hit, we talked about this, we referenced this briefly earlier that, that uh, early in the book you start talking about the prophets 
uh, the Hebrew prophets and the book of Deuteronomy together. Uh, yes. And uh, so can you share a little bit about the link uh, that you're, you, you drew here between the prophetic books and Deuteronomy and, and potentially the way they're overlapping context uh, from where they were, you know, written, compiled, et cetera, um, how that maybe speaks to their shared concern? Yes. I actually would like to start with um, my great teacher, who I never learned with in, in, when he was alive, but from his books, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, that Rabbi Heschel uh, was um, in the lineage of uh, a great ancient dynasty of, of Hasidic rabbis. And he decided in, in the early 30s that he wanted to be to Western. So he was studying for his PhD in philosophy in Berlin in the early 30s. And he saw the rise of the Nazis in Berlin. And, and he felt that the origin of the problem um, was actually very categories of Western thought. There was something in the, what he called the premises and presuppositions of Western thought that was what he said, quote, was treasonable to the grounds of human solidarity. And he looking into the prophets for a different way of thinking. You know, so we often know about the prophets, their, um, you know, political critique, you know, they're critiquing uh, oppressive power and they're on the side of the marginalized, you know, and, and the Bible is from the widow, the orphan and the immigrant. We know that about the problem. But Hasher wanted to dig deeper to say, yes, but what were the thought categories that the, the prophet working with that supported this alternative way of looking at, 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 at the world? And so I, I wanted to place Deuteronomy next to the prophets to service thought categories. If I could find things in Deuteronomy and the prophets that were not in earlier texts. So let me explain that, that you know, I, I accept biblical scholarship that, that, there were, that there were originally multiple texts that were later edited together, and they come from different eras. And so much of Genesis and much of Exodus comes from an earlier era than Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy comes from around, say, the year 609, moving forward, before the common era, right in the center of the prophetic, prophetic era, say, 750 to 550. So these are coterminous texts. And if there's things in these two texts that we don't find in Genesis and, and, and Exodus, then these are thoughts that are coming in this prophetic era. So the first thing that struck me was love. The word love appears once to describe the relationship in God and Israel uh, in, all, in Genesis and Exodus, and that's in the Ten Commandments, uh, in, the, in the Ten Words in, in Exodus. It appears, uh, from memory, I think 16 times in Deuteronomy and multiple times in the, in, in, in the prophets. And so, I mean, that's like a wow. I mean, the way I understand that is in the middle of these hard times, there's a need to re-envision a relationship to God, for God to be more intimate and uh, to really receive a more sense of more loving God. You know, and, and so this is an innovation in the prophets in, in, in Deuteronomy. Similarly, um, in the prophets in Deuteronomy, the people are told multiple times to listen well to God, uh, you know, which is many, many more times than in Genesis or Exodus. We find that in Deuteronomy. So clearly the sense of a listening relationship. And also in Deuteronomy, the prophets, we have God listening to the people. So, so that sense of this dialogical listening relationship was also really, really you know, important. In, in, in that. So I, I put those two texts together to find out what are these deep categories of thought that are being innovated in response to the challenge of, uh, of the day, which is the challenge the prophets are facing. 
Thank you for that. Um, you, you started to talk about dialogue there, and I want to I want to follow that thread a little bit. Um, so you write, uh, covenant establishes a relationship. Love provides the intimate quality of that relationship, and dialogue is how an intimate relationship evolves from day to day. The prophets and Deuteronomy both hold up dialogue as an essential aspect of Israel's relationship with God. Um, let me talk a little more about how dialogue shapes, you know, that relationship, particularly around, you know, concepts of, of command. Because um, you, you kind of talk about the way uh, often, um, you know, we get the word obey used a lot and that, that kind of maybe obscures kind of the more open nature of this listening dialogical relationship. Yeah, I'd like to do that. And then I'd like to bring that forward into some contemporary thinkers also that are in, 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 in the book. Yeah, so first of all, um, in, I see most famously the King James Version translation of the Bible, there's a, a Hebrew phrase that means to diligently listen, to listen carefully, to really bring your heart to listening, <clears throat> that is translated in the King James as obey. And in, in many other texts that are derivative of the King James as, as obey. So listen gets translated as, as, as obey. So it's a very different understanding of what the relationship is. You know, the listening involves sense of, I'm going to listen to what you're saying. I'm going to take that seriously. But then I am going to respond out of my sense of how is the best way to work with that, to respond to that. It, it, it opens up freedom within me and my response. Obey is just do this thing. Don't process it through your own sense of, of, of what's right. Just do this thing. So the question is, is God looking for automatons that just do this thing? Or is God looking for free people who out of love and devotion are committed to a certain way of life? I think there's no doubt if you read the Bible carefully that God, I like to say, God is not looking for Stepford wives. You know, that, that God is looking for free individuals who freely choose to be devoted in their heart and, and to, to bring forth God's um, love. So the word translated as command in the Bible, the, the Hebrew root, mem, sadik, hey, also means charge. And I choose, I, I retranslate all those verses, with their command, and use the word charge. Because I think to say that God charges us has a sense of responsibility that I'm giving you, but I'm giving you the, the, the dignity of how you're going to respond to this as opposed to a, 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 a command. I think command is a mistranslation. By the way, in, in the Hebrew and in the rabbinic literature, there's no such thing as the Ten Commandments. A Sarah wrote the Ten Words, you know, the Ten Basic Principles that are to challenge us how we're meant to live. I mean, who can keep the commandment, thou shalt not covet, all of the time. I mean, you know, I mean, we do. And then we say, oh, God, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I, and then, but I want to bring through, so this sense of dialogue with God, listening to a God who's charging us, I think is the spirit of Deuteronomy and the prophets. It's interesting to me, in the second half of the book, I bring forward a number of contemporary thinkers, Martin Luther King, Paulo Freire, Gustavo Gutierrez, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Martin Buber, um, Eric Fromm, and in many of them, the, the way forward to liberation is a dialogical journey in the 
community about how to go forward. There's not one person who's going to have the answer the way forward. You know, the more inclusive our conversation can be, those that, that want to move forward this way, the wiser the, the, the action is going to be. And it's also a dialogue with reality. It's like, okay, this seems to be the right step forward. Let's take this step and then let's listen. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's a chapter. There's a chapter in the book that I um, took after um, the work of, of uh, Paulo Freire and, um, based on the poem by Machado um, that uh, we make the road by walking. You know, in other words, I think in, in, in this time where we need to make significant changes, we should be intimidated by we can't envision the end of the road. We just need to know what is our best sense of what's the next step forward in the direction of liberation. And then we listen and we pay attention and we walk and we see. Yeah. So, so no, go ahead, go ahead. So, so Freddie said in his Freddie in his um, beautiful book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, that um, that true um, action revolves involves a, a um, a dialogical sense of reflection and action, reflection and action, reflection and action. That action without reflection is mere for activism. It's not mindful. And reflection without action is mere verbalism, mere words. But it's action reflection. That's what takes us forward. That's what takes us forward. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. And I think because you, you draw, you know, you draw attention to like, you know, Micah 6, 8, for instance, you know, do justice, love kindness and walk humbly. It's like that is an open-ended Yes. Um, charge, right? That is something that has to be worked out in each generation, in each context. It's it, you cannot be an automaton and follow that kind of a a charge. It just it does not compute, kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a bit about the the figures, as you say. You, you, the, the second half of the book uh, explores kind of more contemporary figures. Um, you know, in in, in who, who who embody or who have followed this prophetic stream. Uh, that you, you've been identifying through through the uh, Hebrew prophets. Uh, how was it like trying to, I guess, make that short list? Because I'm sure, like, you know, there's there's lots of contenders who could be brought into this kind of a conversation. Did that uh, like emerge naturally in the earlier conversations at uh, Bet Midrash or did that uh, come a different way? And, um, yeah, how, how did this, this the original, I guess, trying to whittle down who you were going to bring into this conversation? Yeah, that's exactly right. It was really difficult to decide who to bring into the conversation. And, um, you know, both in teaching the class and in writing the book, um, there was just a lot of intuition for me involved, a lot of sensing, this is the next step forward. This is the way we need to go. This is our next book. And, 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 and I, I, you know, as many artists find, like I say, I didn't write the book you know, I wrote the book in relationship to a spirit that came to me. So, I mean, I, I, I mean that in the sense of there was a sense of me being in relationship with the spirit of this book. And so, and, and, and earlier it, in the spirit of the class. And so in that sense, I would, would ask, well, what, what's next? You know, what, what needs to be included, what not. If I had to do it again, it'd, it'd probably be a, a, different, <laughs> a different list because there's a number of, of, of really fine thinkers that, mm. writers that I didn't include. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the other question is, so, you know, looking at these different figures, was there, I'm sure you learned a lot, you know, really diving into their work and their lives. Is there any kind of, either you can either go two ways with this. You can either go, was there any kind of trend that you started to see? I mean, potentially that what you've already, uh, identified that dialogue in community, that reflection and action. 
Um, or was there one particular just fascinating thing? Like I just did not know that thing about bell hooks. I did not know that thing about MLK. And, 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 and that really, you know, that was worth all the research and all the writing was learning that. Yeah, yeah. So that was the challenge in the second half of the book because in the Beit Midrash, we did one thinker at a, at a time and we just explored the, that thinker and then related that to the prophetic stream. But I was clear that in writing a book, I didn't want to do it that way, that I wanted to find themes that ran through. I want to do it thematically, that ran through. So I actually went and reread everything that we'd read and made extensive notes and looked for patterns. You know, And so I saw all kinds of things that, that I hadn't seen when we had done it in Beit Midrash, because you'd done it one thinker at a time. And, but, and I was really um, delighted and relieved when the spirit of the book gave me those patterns <laughs> after a lot of hard work. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a lot of hard work and then a lot of grace. Kind of. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, so I, I, we, we're recording this uh, obviously during uh, the whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic and all the disruption uh, that that has caused to, to lives, and much more so in the US than, than here in Australia, but still significant here too. Uh, I want to read just a quick passage of the book and then, and then draw that into a question about this kind of context that we're in. So for people uh, reading along, this is from, from the book. Uh, where am I starting from? Sorry. Okay, to help the people integrate and survive the great disaster of exile, uh, Deuteronomy and the prophets offer the people a fundamental shift in communal self-understanding, a renewed emphasis on the Exodus journey. The king and the temple had failed to provide justice or physical security for the people. In response to the inevitable collapse of these great Israelite institutions, the prophet and Deuteronomic authors step into the breach and offer a new way forward. This, the key to this new way is a reconceptualization of the exodus from an event in the past to an ever-present process, an ongoing journey, a liberation journey with God. Now, I think, you know, thinking about the crisis that the people were going through, there are definitely, I think, some, you know, some thematic parallels with some of the, some of the experience of COVID-19 uh, and there's a potency of the prophets and Deuteronomy to speak into the current situation, I think, increases uh, when you speak of the way they reworked the tradition to reimagine the people's communal life as an ongoing journey with God. Yeah. And then kind of double down on this emphasis to critique what you call like the currency of empire, uh, as in claims to stability and immutability. So to rather to, to subvert those claims of empire of stability and immutability, they, they, they doubled down on this emphasis on journey and an ongoing walk with God and an ongoing move toward relationship. And I'm thinking so much of the current conflict and discourse in the COVID-19 context uh, is based on strident resistance to any disruption uh, mm. and even a willingness to risk the death of the marginalised in order to get... Uh, get things back to the way they were in order to achieve achieve uh, back to the status quo of stability, uh, which, you know, might be a false stability. Uh, so I guess thinking about all that in the context of this, you know, books are written well before they come out <laughs> and start getting read. And, and you, you no way you were envisioning this was the context in which I would be reading this book and now talking to you. But any thoughts on how this prophetic stream with its, with its emphasis on journey, with its you know, really imaginative work to 
to, to transform a people's relationship with God and transform people's relationship with their journey um, would speak into this time. Well, thank you. That's a really excellent question. So I think it begins with what do we think our lives are for? Do we think our lives are for settling in, for possessing a number of things, for being in control of a number of things? You know, I mean, is that really what our lives with God are for? Or are lives about learning? Our lives about being more loving? Our lives about being creative? Our lives about innovating a way that we can be together in community and family and society in which all can flourish? You know, so I, I think in many ways, um, you know, there, there, is, there is in the Bible a, a prophetic thread and a royal thread. And the, the message of the royal thread is, it, um, you know, life is really about command and control. And the, the prophetic thread is life is about this learning journey. And I, and I think that every society, the elites in every society, or many of the elites in every society, want to communicate that life is about selling in command and control because it serves the elites for there not to be a journey that we're on. And so we're taught that our lives are really about, you know, uh, get the good career, get the house, you know, whatever it is, you know, get the toys, that that's really, you know, communicating our culture, what life's about. But if we begin to say, no, our life is, what we're really here for is to be on this journey of liberation. Then we begin thinking about our lives differently. And also, I think if we think about that it's, that we are in a long lineage, I mean, that's part of what the prophets did. They said, to the, they said to the people, yeah, it's really scary right now. And it was scary for Moses. And it was scary for Abraham. <laughs> it was scary for Jacob. You know, and so, and look what they did. I mean, we're in a yeah. long lineage, mm. you know. And so it is really scary right now, you know. And it was scary for Martin Luther King. And it was scary for Sojourner Truth. And it was scary for the, you know, you know and, and they were creative. And they made a difference. You know? And so that when we say that, where we're at is at a, you know, at a certain stage in a, in a long liberation journey. And then the other move that the prophets made that was so important to me was they envisioned all of creation as a liberation journey, that the very evolution of creation is a liberation journey. As, as things evolve to be more complex, more conscious, more interrelated, they're on a liberation journey out of simpler forms, more complex forms, and more interrelated forms. And, and you know, and I show in the book, in one of the chapters, that that is the way that the creation story communicates about, about creation. So that is to say that the God of creation is involved in his liberation journey through all of creation. And that not only are, are we a long human lineage, but we're a part of a creationist learning and growing and evolving and changing. You know, um, and, and so we're in really good company in that sense. So I think that that's a... A, a powerful reframing that can be um, helpful to us today. Thank you for that. That's that's really helpful. So we'll, we'll start to land the plane. Uh, uh, so I've got the kind of this last question before our final kind of game question. Uh, just a flag that that's coming. Um, so so 
you know, I, I picked up this book when I was going to start to read it and I thought, okay, the liberating path of the Hebrew prophets then and now. And I'm like, you know, in some way, you, you know, your head starts to imagine what kind of book you're about to read. And I'm thinking, okay, there'll probably be like a couple of introductory chapters, then a chapter on each of the prophets. And then, and then some chapters, as you say, kind of like one on each of the um, right. more contemporary figures. But, but is it the book is, you know, um, much more thematic, uh, you know, picking up things and, and journeying with, uh, these different figures and with the books uh, of, of scripture, uh, it's reading Deuteronomy and the prophets together. Uh, it's it's you know it's investigating these in contemporary figures through these themes. It's got um, you know the appendix with the, this attention to spiritual discipline. The book itself, as we discussed, was born of dialogue. So having having thought about that, we often when we think about I'm going to read scripture, we pick up. And we just flip to Amos and we read whatever, a couple of chapters of Amos. Uh, that's fine. But like I'm, I'm thinking, like, if so, having having gone through this journey from dialogue to then, you know, using biblical criticism to using, you know, this intertextual reading to then drawing in the contemporary figures and thinking about how we take it from the page into our life. I'm, I'm wondering about like almost like, you know, it sounds too basic, but almost you're, you're like, here's a tip I would offer for someone who thinks I want to read more of the Hebrew prophets, right? Um, I want to, I want to, I want to read something like, you know, it seems like it's not almost as simple as just you pick up and start to read, um, uh, you know, cause it, it's, it's, it's embedded in such a perfect stream that runs through scripture that then goes beyond into the contemporary world and keeps going into our own lives that we can pick up and get going. So I'm just thinking about those who, who have heard this and been like, I should read more of the prophets. That's, that's exciting. Uh, I'm excited to do it. Uh, other than buy the book so they have a healthy and helpful guide to their, to their task, um, any, any tips you just have, any final kind of like here's a, a guiding uh, path to, to, to undertaking picking up the Bible and reading it? Yeah. So I think that we are so encrusted in Western thought that the prophets can appear really strange. And we're so um, invested in what is basically a, a Greek idea of a, a God that's beyond emotions, that the emotions that one finds in, in, in God of the prophets is, is really hard to understand. So I, I think it's helpful to read the prophets with a good commentary that helps us see them in their own context. So I would suggest um, two general books and, and, and then, you know, as many, many good commentaries on specific prophets. So, so the, um, the two figures who have been most important to me on the prophets are Abraham Joshua Heschel and his book, The Prophets, which um, his, was his PhD thesis in Berlin uh, that I referred to earlier, later published as The Prophets. It's a really beautiful book. And he does do one prophet at a time, but then he does talk about the thinking of the prophets, both. So that book, and then um, Walter Bergerman's book, uh, The Prophetic Imagination, I think is just a, an essential, magnificent book. And then Walter Bergerman has commentaries, um, many commentaries, on uh, some on, on individual prophets, some grouped. I, I think I, I love his, his work on the prophets, and so I would, I would, I would um, pick up a prophet and pick up Walter's commentary to the prophet, but first I, I would I would read Heschel and, and Brueggemann's uh, *The Prophetic Imagination*. I think that they're both really uh, helpful. 
By the way, Walter has a new book out, believe it or not, in response to the COVID virus called Virus, A Summons to Faith by Walter Brueggemann, which is just out. And of course, it's just out. That he already wrote it is just unbelievable. And um, it's an awesome book. And and um, he honored me by asking me to write the foreword. But I'm not suggesting that you... Re- I have no financial stake in this book at all. Uh, it's, it's not that he... It's really a great book that brings forward spiritual lessons that we can learn and live in response to this virus. I recommend that book. Virus is a summons to faith to everybody. Thank you for that. Walter Brueggemann's one of those figures that if just a random person on any week said, Walter Brueggemann's got a new book coming out next week, I'd, I'd believe that's it because it just seems to be one every other month. Uh, <laughs> prolific, <laughs> prolific man. Uh, who, who, um, who wrote the foreword uh, to you, to the Liberating yes. Past of the Hebrew Prophets. So the final game question uh, that, that we're just asking with is, uh, you know, someone might have bought your book. I do hope so, my listeners. Um, come through and buy the book uh, and they're going to sit down and read it and they need to read it with a nice meal. Uh, what should they be eating while reading oh, The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets? What meal oh pairs best? What pairs best with this book? Well, I, I'm, um, you know, a pretty much a vegan. <laughs> um, although it's not true. The one thing I, I do on the Sabbath have an omelet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Because my wife and I have had omelets on the Sabbath for, for, for 40 years. So, oh, that's lovely. That's, so, um, so uh, golly, what? Sh- well, um, I would have it, I would drink it with a, a, a glass of a really fine Chablis. Um, because I think that kind of elevates the tastes. Uh, and what kind of... <laughs> well, you know what? This is a funny thing. So I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and so uh, Mexican and New Mexican food is really uh, good here. So um, <laughs> I, uh, oh, gee. Well, that, well, that is a game question, Leon. <laughs> uh, I saved the hardest for last. and That's probably unfair after you've already... You know, talked. You know what I? You know what I would have with a Chablis. I would have dark chocolate covered strawberries. Wow. Yeah. And and the reason why is these are really really hard times. The prophets are living in hard times, and to taste the sweetness of God's creation, I think is really what we need to continually do. You know, mm. another, I don't know if I did put this in the back of the book or not, but I should have in the appendix on spiritual practices, looking for beauty. Mm. I think it's a really important thing that we do every day, look for beauty. Um, so tasting the Chablis along with the dark chocolate covered strawberry, I mean a nice big strawberry, you know? Yeah, yeah, juicy and dripping. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. And that's where, that's where I'd go. Oh, that's perfect. What a great one. That's a great option. Uh, well, uh, the book, everyone, is The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets Then and Now. It's out with Orbis Books. I don't know why I'm holding it up again. I, I'm holding it up to show it to you. I'm just hoping people will jump off the, off the audio into your hearts. Uh, out with Orbis Books. Please go and check it out. My guest is Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev. 
Thank you for coming. Is there anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to? Yeah, I, I think we need to all be about giving birth to this new world. And I, I think that there is the prophetic in all of us. I think that God touches us all with the dreams and yearnings for how we would like the world to be. And I think we can't do it by ourselves, that we need to do it with others. We need to do it in community. And I, I encourage people to find communities that are wanting to um, take part in, in giving birth to a world of love and caring where we, we, we understand that the earth that we're living on is um, beautiful and fragile, needs to be taken care of, and that all, all of creation and all the people on the earth are beloved by God and deserve to flourish. And um, you know, now, now is the time uh, to reflect and to act, to reflect and to act, to reflect and act, to pray and to do, to pray and to do, to pray, to contemplate and to act. Yeah, that's what that's what that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you My very much. That's a <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful way to end, and I appreciate it so much. And uh, there's so much in the book we didn't even begin to cover. So I really, if you've been interested in this conversation at all, folks, go and get the book. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for this interview. You read the book well and asked great questions. This is a, I've done many interviews. This is a great one. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you very much.